it's like we have all been conditioned to believe since birth that alcohol is just this totally normal thing. It's almost like water to a fish. A lot of people don't even consider it a drug, right? And But I compare it to cocaine and heroin and people like lose their mind. And it's like, you're just, you're following a cognitive bias and assuming that because the government or the medical establishment or the CDC or whoever approves it and you can buy it in grocery stores, so it must be okay. Ready to live at the higher vibrations where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw. Welcome back to the Vibe Show. Today I want to tell you a little story. It's about my new friend Bardia Rez here, who's the stop drinking coach. At the end, we'll have him tell you where you can find him. But I don't think I've talked about this on on this podcast, but I left alcohol in 2022. And some of you are gonna say, wait, what? Are you a drunk, Robin? No. So very much like Bardia. I had a 13-year experiment with alcohol. His was 14, and I'm going to ask him his story next. But um, I was raised in a home with no alcohol. I was raised in a culture with no alcohol. While I was married and raising children, there was zero alcohol. And then when I found myself suddenly single in a sea of married LDS or Mormon people, and started hanging out with single people. I think I started with one drink and eventually it became Saturday night. And I really believed a lot of the lies that I told myself over the course of those 13 years and decided somewhere in 2022 that that was going to be the last time I drank alcohol. So I started listening to content. And one of my favorite people I started listening to is this gentleman here. Bardia, the stop drinking coach. And his story is, we'll let him tell it. But um, one of the lies that I told myself was that it was fine because I would drink only on Saturday night and um, I would drink organic red wine and, or I would drink my fresh green juice first and I would take charcoal and I would take N-acetylcysteine and I would take vitamin C. And in my mind, it was fine because I ate so healthy the rest of the week, right? Well, I have to tell you guys that since not drinking on Saturday night anymore, I wake up at 6 a.m. and instead of getting back in bed and usually falling back asleep till 7 in the morning, sometimes 7.30, I wake up and jump out of bed like I used to. That's probably the big thing I noticed because I really wasn't having any health problems. And like, I blend the weeds in my yard in my green smoothies and eat plant-based and get in my sauna. Sometimes I do sauna and ice bath. Like I do a lot of things for my health. And so in my mind, the story I told myself was that this is just my one vice. And, and I need this to relax on Saturday night. Like I need something to look forward to. And I also, I'm just teeing up all the stories that we tell ourselves, Bardia, and then you can just dismantle them one by one if you want. You can take on any and all of these you want because I listened to you. I read Annie Grace's book, This Naked Mind, listened to some of her podcasts, uh, read her book, listened to you, listened to... Um, what What's that one guy? And he shows a bunch of celebrities who have had a drinking problem and come back from it. I'm trying to think what that guy's name is. Do you know who James, I'm talking about? Maybe. James. No. Bald guy? Or no? No. Okay. But anyway, I, I, oh, and I also listened to Dr. Andrew Huberman. He has like a two and a half hour podcast. And then the funny thing is I was sharing the content that I wrote about it on my Substack that I got. I probably got more feedback on that Substack post about that I left alcohol in 2022 than on any topic I've written about for 16 years. Wow. Um, and, and I probably had a couple dozen people in my personal life e- either DMing me on Facebook or texting me and saying, I want to quit too. Mm. In fact, one of them is a formerly pretty famous professional athlete and she's asked to come on this show. So I'm going to bring her on the show and talk about, it's only been a few weeks for her, but she's, it's blowing her mind how much better she feels. So sorry, that was all a, a big, long intro. What was, what was the other excuse I gave myself? Like I needed something to look forward to. Oh, and that I was having more fun. 
at a party, that at a party, I was having more fun because I was drinking. And so there's all the excuses that we tell ourselves. Why don't you start, Bardia, by telling us your story with alcohol? Because now it's your career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Thank you, Robin, for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate you reaching out to me. And this alcohol topic, I feel like, is, is so important to talk about, especially in kind of today's world. It seems like maybe over the last five, eight years, but especially the last couple, um, people are kind of waking up to the damaging effects that alcohol is having on them. Um, and I think a large part of that is, is due to social media. And the new information that's that's coming out, individuals like Andrew Huberman, maybe myself, other individuals who are being more open and honest about what their relationship with alcohol look like. People are being more open, more vulnerable, and people are beginning to wake up and kind of audit their own relationship with alcohol. I think prior to this, um, we've kind of been in the dark and a problematic relationship with with alcohol was had a lot of shame to it because of our culture. And it's like, oh, you're... And I mean, we, we, can, we can really dig into that more. Um, but it's... I think a lot of people are suffering in silence. And so the more awareness that we bring to this, I think, I think the better. But yeah, my story with alcohol really goes all the way back to my childhood. Um, it's really kind of been the centerpiece of my entire life. And all roads have led me to be... T- Doing the work that I'm doing now, and, I, and why I feel so tooled um, to to do it, and I think why I've I've grown so quickly and have helped so many people. But really, it goes back to you know the time I was born. Uh, I was born into a really kind of crazy dysfunctional family. My family was was very very dysfunctional. My dad was an alcoholic. He um, was a very very heavy drinker. Drank every single day. Only time I really knew him sober was Saturday mornings. You know, once a month he'd take me to get my hair cut. Um, but anything that you can imagine in a in an you know, alcoholic family, a lot of trauma. Um, it was it was just like a war zone. It was really crazy. I mean, I woke up multiple nights per week for years to cops coming at you know to the door because my dad was you know be drinking, he'd be raging, he was very verbally and like emotionally abusive to everyone in my family, and uh, the whole deal. Like, tons of adverse childhood experiences. Um, around 12, my mom tried, you know, committing suicide. She was in a really dark place. That was really traumatic and, and pretty crazy. Um, and then when I turned 14, or not when I turned 14, but when I was 14, my dad um, dies of alcohol poisoning in his sleep. And that was pretty crazy for me as well. And so, you know, I think early on, seeing all that, growing up in such a crazy, chaotic environment. I always told myself I was never going to drink. And because I had seen what drugs and alcohol... I mean, there's also drugs in the picture, which I haven't really mentioned, but I'd seen what it done to my family. Um, told myself my, myself I'd never go near it. But inevitably, you know, I get into high school. Sophomore year, I start partying. And pretty much immediately, the first time I picked up alcohol, I became a binge drinker. I have always been one of those people where as soon as I would have one drink, and we can go into the neuroscience of why this happens, but a switch would go off, a light would go off in my brain. And I kept drinking until I either got really drunk or, or sick or just, you know, I maxed it out every single time. I think in 14, 15 years, I can literally count on one hand the times where I had less than five drinks. I mean, every single time I always overdid it. And um, that it, it was it was crazy because there was an incredible amount of shame and guilt that came along with it because I saw what it had done to my family, you know? And so every single time I woke up the next day, I was like, I'm never drinking again. But inevitably, I would get the craving a few days later as soon as the hangover would subside. And I was stuck in this cycle, reliving kind of the same week of my life over and over and over again. Um, so when my dad passed away, my uncle came down to help with the funeral and he gave me this book by this guy named Wayne Dyer. You may have heard of him. He's a spiritual guru, passed away a few years ago. But he gave me this book at 14 years old and it was called, You'll See It When You Believe It. And I read that book, my first personal development book at, at the age of 14. And it it absolutely transforms my life. It, it, it 
shifted my paradigm. It introduced me to the concept of consciousness and how your mind and beliefs influence your reality and just kind of this whole world of spirituality and personal development. And um, I became super hungry for that. So, you know, between the ages of 15, you know, 14 and 20, by the time I was 20, I'd had I'd read like every major like personal development book that was out at the time. And so while I was kind of drinking, you know, like I was this this high functioning sort of binge drinker. I mean, I was in high school at the time, played football. On the outside, you wouldn't have been able to tell. You know, it was like Barty just likes to party. He's in good shape. Like he's athletic. He's popular, whatever. But like inside, it was robbing me. It was destroying me. So half of my personality was like, you know, really addicted to alcohol, addicted to that dopamine, that rush. The other half of my personality was really focused on personal growth and fulfilling my potential and, you know, studying philosophy and spirituality and consciousness and all these things. Kind of fast forward, I get into my 20s and it's it's still the same thing. Like I'm I'm this high functioning individual, but I'm just absolutely obliterating myself two to three days a week. And the the hangovers would last until Wednesday. Thursday kind of start feeling better. Friday, I'd do it all over again. And I was just, I was just trapped in the cycle. And I tried kind of everything, you know, to stop. I probably made at least 10 serious attempts along as I went with six months uh, without alcohol, but inevitably went back to it. And um it was crazy. You know, I did I did the AA thing for a while. I did some therapy and like nothing really seemed to help. Like it did those solutions, they just they weren't helping me. Um Finally, kind of fast forward, the pandemic hits a couple of years ago, and you know the world is in disarray. You start working from home, you kind of lose the sense of accountability. Nobody knows what's going on, and so I started drinking every day, and my alcohol consumption continued, like just started to rapidly increase to the point where I got up to drinking four to six bottles of wine and smoking a pack of cigarettes every single day, and I was doing that for like almost six months, and. Um, it was absolutely brutal. I mean, I was breaking my everything was breaking down mentally, emotionally, my body, physically, just super, super unsustainable. And um, it was it was like a major problem. And so one day, you know, kind of getting to this rock bottom here, one day a friend of mine invites me to the pool. I'd been drinking all day, and by this time, my body, everything was just kind of beaten down from all this alcohol. Alcohol is, is literally poison, right? Acetaldehyde is a carcinogen. Everything is breaking down. And um, we go to the pool. He challenges me to a race. And I'm, I've always prided myself on being a very fast swimmer. I've always beat everybody I've ever raced against. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. We start racing and you know, I'm, I'm, sw- I'm swimming and flailing my arms and, and you know, almost like halfway through, uh, my left shoulder like severely dislocates. I, I dislocated in, in football 10 years you know, prior in high school. And um, it was just never 100%. And so I was swimming so aggressively, my sh- shoulder dislocated. And it was the most excruciating pain of my entire life. I mean, it was mangled. It was like hanging out. And I, like, I couldn't even lift it out of the water. And it was just terrible. Most excruciating pain really I've ever felt. And it was out for like 10 minutes. And finally, by the grace of God, I kind of figured some way to wiggle it back in. And in that moment, you know, I I went into some real deep reflection. You know, at this point, the pain was so great that I just realized like this would not have happened if I wasn't drinking. Right. And I looked at what was going on in my life over the last six, six to 12 months, this relationship that's basically destroyed me with alcohol. And I was 29 at the time. I was getting ready to turn 30 in a few months. And I just kind of ran through my life. And I realized that like I was a universe away from the person I knew I was capable of being. Right. I had spent basically half of my life deeply studying everything around personal growth, mindset, success, philosophy, consciousness, that whole side of, of, of reality. And but I had this, this thing that that Every time I would take three steps forward, it would take it would take me five steps back. And I realized that the only thing that was ever holding me back in my life was alcohol. Like when I wasn't drinking the the few days a week that I was like sober, like I was on top of my game. Sure, I was hungover or whatever, but like I was consistent, I was in shape. Like I think I'm, you know, 
like I had my shit together. Like I was in, I was in order, but it was this alcohol thing. So I was 29 getting right to turn 30. And I basically told myself, like, if, if I want to achieve that potential, that version of myself that I know I am, that I'm capable of being, there's only one thing I needed to do. And that was to, to quit drinking alcohol. And, um, I just knew like, and, and so in that moment, two things were super clear to me, the pain the pain that alcohol had caused because I, I viscerally felt it, right? There was no denying it. There's no weaseling my way out of it, like coming up with excuses. Like it was there, it was visceral, it was real. And the other thing was this vision for the future is my life is more than this. And I knew that if I reintroduce alcohol, all that dream and that vision, which is basically the life I'm living now, would not be possible. Alcohol was the only thing that, that was holding me back from that. Um, Shortly after that, you know, so so I quit drinking. You know, I, I start working uh, with a coaching company. I immerse myself in their system. I, I get coaching, and that next year ends up being the most transformational, healing year of my life. Um, I become a coach. I coach a bunch of people. I I, I lead retreats, and I I kind of just step into this new chapter. And um, and then about a year ago, I started Stop Drinking Coach, and you know, since then my my contents reached 60 million people. I have a top five percent most globally shared podcast. Um, you know, and I think I've I've probably directly and indirectly have helped and inspired tens of thousands of people to to transform their relationship with alcohol. Um, well, congratulations. That's a astonishing story. And wow, I was really struck by how similar your story is to my father's story, who my father's never never tasted alcohol, but he, he grew up in a home with an alcoholic father and my grandmother killed herself when she was 33. And as you were speaking, I, I have thought to myself, you know, I've assumed that my grandpa became an alcoholic because his wife killed herself. And I just literally had the thought, what if she was drinking too? What if that's why I don't know. I didn't know her. I only, you know, it's kind of like, everything resets even two generations later before the suicide and after the suicide. And my grandmother, who I obviously never met dying when my father was 12. Um, I've just assumed that he started drinking heavily because his wife died and he had three young kids to raise. Well, how do I know that their relationship problems that caused her to take her own life how do I know that they weren't related to her alcohol use and his alcohol use and the combination? Because I think anybody who's had much alcohol at all knows that you get, that's a, that's a lot of why I wanted to quit. I wasn't noticing not feeling well, but I just noticed that I would get my feelings hurt on Saturday night. Why was it always Saturday night when I would get my feelings hurt by my husband? Mm. Right. In fact, um, you know, I I thought that I would just go review a bunch of content that would make me very motivated. It's not like I don't know a lot about health and wellness, right? I've written 16 health and wellness books. And I knew that alcohol was bad for me. And I knew that it was hard on my liver. And I knew what it had done to my grandpa, um, who did stop drinking right about the same age I'm at and lived to be 92. Um, so there's always hope and you can always stop. Um, but I really thought that I would be white knuckling it. And I thought that I would continue to drink on Saturday night and then have a last hurrah at my birthday party. But when I started listening to content and really Annie Grace just completely deconstructed all the excuses that I was using. And, and she says something at the beginning, like, don't, don't decide to stop drinking. She said, just read the book and you won't want to. And that is exactly what happened to me. And then I continued on and, and my daughter, then I, I gave the content to both my daughters and they had arrived at the same conclusion I had at the same time. And we've all not had alcohol since 2022. And we're, we're all comparing notes about how glad we are that we're not drinking. My daughter's just about to finish 75 hard. You know that program? Yeah. She's started it before, but she's never finished it. But she's within striking range. She's really, really close. That's so, awesome. um, but I, you know, I, I think that in my mind, you know, I, even though I know better and I often tell people, be careful when you, on your nutrition journey, not to compare yourself to other people. I've never thrown up after drinking. I've never mm -hmm. drank so much that I 
have thrown up. And so I did the thing that I always tell people not to do with drinking as in, well, all these other people are so much worse that I'm fine. Right. That's a you know, like it, it's not a, it's not a good benchmark, right? If everybody, right. if everybody on my block eats McDonald's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I don't eat McDonald's once a day, does that make me healthy or does that make me less unhealthy than everybody else? Right. Yeah, totally. That's a really common one that we do in our society that I think people do with alcohol is they're always comparing themselves to somebody who's worse. And I think this is because kind of going back to what I was talking about in the beginning, it's like, it's it's the conditioning, right? We kind of live in this matrix and not to get too crazy with it, but like as you begin to become more self-aware and mindful of all the programs and systems running the show... It's like we have all been conditioned to believe since birth that alcohol is just this totally normal thing. It's almost like water to a fish. A lot of people don't even consider it a drug, right? And But I compare it to cocaine and heroin and people like lose their mind. And it's like you're just you're following a cognitive bias and assuming that because the government or the medical establishment or the CDC or whoever approves it and you can buy it in the grocery stores, so it must be okay because or else it wouldn't be legal, right? But a drug is just anything that changes the way that you feel. It augments your neurochemistry. And in fact, alcohol really is a hard drug because it it does a tremendous amount of damage to your neurochemistry. More people are addicted to alcohol than like people would like to admit and, and really be honest about. Um, but it's like from our conditioning through media and movies and television, you kind of just get two people. You get the person who just drinks all the time, the lead hero, the actor, right? It's, oh, let me just have a drink after work to de-stress. Let me drink to party. Let me drink at every social event. It's it's woven into the fabric of every social interaction. So you get the picture of the person who's just basically drinking all the time and still living their life on top of their game, high-functioning, not negatively affected by it, but it's something they're constantly doing. So we're getting that that data, that programming in that, hey, this is okay. This is what people do. This is what we aspire to do, right? You look at every commercial, every third commercial is an alcohol commercial. And how do they always show it? You know, people sitting on the beach relaxing as if alcohol is part of the goal, as it's part of the end game of life, where you work hard so you can finally retire, so you can finally relax, so that you can finally drink, enjoy a Corona on the beach. This is programming. This is conditioning. This isn't what alcohol is or how it's affecting your neurochemistry or what it's doing to your brain. So we get that. That's one aspect. The second person that you see is the alcoholic drinking out of a brown paper bag, stumbling over, you know, peeing themselves, being a nuisance to themselves, homeless, nuisance to society, whatever. And there's no spectrum. It doesn't show any middle ground. And so basically, the, the assumption becomes right? Because the way we interface with reality is we, we compare ourselves to, to other people and, and stuff around us. So we say, okay, well, as long as I can be high functioning and I can have a job and make sure I meet my needs and pay my bills, like then I can drink, right? And as long as I'm not that guy, as long as... And then comes the million and a half different excuses that people create. As long as I'm not drinking at home, as long as I'm not drinking at noon, as long as I'm not waking up to drink, as long as I don't drink during the week and only drink on the weekends. And, and literally, there's about 100,000 of these different types of games and excuses you can give to yourself. As long as I'm not that bad, then I'm okay. And man, that keeps people trapped. That keeps people trapped for decades. And then you look at the neurochemistry side of things, which I can certainly get into, but um, which which really keeps people trapped, which people don't understand. And then you get into the trauma side of things and this stuff starts to to really kind of get crazy. Yeah, it's really easy to drink alcohol to numb out, even though you know that tomorrow morning it's going to be worse. And I don't think that people realize that even if they don't have a quote unquote hangover, because I didn't, I've never had a headache the next morning. Like I said, I've never thrown up. But now what I'm realizing a few months in, and I'm, I really wanted to hear what Huberman says may take six months or 12 months for your, for your brain to completely dry out. And for all the residuals uh, or metabolites of alcohol to leave your system, you might need six or 12 months. And I'm like, 
well, there's no way that I'm going to drink a beer on the beach with everybody else because I want to see how great I can feel after six months or after 12 months. But one of my favorite things about just not drinking anymore is that there's no more debate going on in my mind. Mm. You know, because we we moved here to Florida in 2020 and, you know, the Saturday night thing, it was really easy to, I remember we, 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 the back of our condo complex backed up onto the intracoastal and we had kayaks out there. And I remember once taking a beer out there in the kayak. And then a second time we went out in the kayak and I took another beer. And then a week later we went to get in the kayak. And then in my mind, I was like, I I need a beer. I, and, and then I was like, okay, I can never have a beer in the kayak again, or I'm going to get this thing in my mind that I have to drink every time I go in the kayak. So then on the flip side, the front of our condo complex opens out onto the, the beach here on the East coast. And I have never been a place like Florida. So I went from Utah where the majority are LDS or Mormon and they don't drink at all. And the state controls the liquor. Like you literally have to go to state liquor store from 11 to seven to get alcohol there, unless it's like those two or 3% beers, whatever in the grocery store. And um, so I went from Utah where there just really wasn't very alcohol, very much alcohol. You didn't like, I've been to hundreds of parties where there's no alcohol come here to Florida. And there is a liquor store in every other, every other block, um, every party, everybody's smashed. And what's weird is cause I think of seniors as being like smarter than me. Right. And, um, all the seniors here are drinking or high, like all of them, yeah. all of them all the time. So now, so then we'd go out on the beach and we'd sit with our friends and we'd put up a tent, we'd sit on the beach and guess what everybody is doing out there. And so then I ended up like, like I don't day drink, but then I, I caught myself drinking because everybody else was. And so anyways, it's just so nice now to just like, I don't do that anymore. So I go to the party and I, I will say, you know, I want, I want to tell everybody Oh, the parties are more fun without alcohol. I I will say that the parties aren't less fun. And so when my birthday came around, I had already ditched alcohol a couple months before. So I did my birthday as almost the only one here at my house who wasn't drinking. Um, but there was there people got pretty raucous towards the end of the night, right? And we're out on my lanai, and there's about 10 neighbors, and they got in this thing. They they're getting very, very loud. You know, because the GABA yeah. shuts the GABA production in the the frontal lobe shuts down or whatever, and so people get louder. And, and all those of you, whether you drink or not, have probably noticed that the party gets louder and louder and louder. And you're shouting, and you might not have a voice the next morning because that's what happens when everybody's drinking. Well, well, I'm there as the only one not drinking, and my neighbors just got on a tear about how I ignore everybody and I don't say hello to everyone. And then they would like all one up each other with how many times I had ignored them when I'm out on the beach or whatever. Well, I'm listening to content on the beach and I I literally have never intentionally dissed anybody, but I promise you that had I been drinking with them, I would have been so butthurt and I would, I would have not been clear. Like, you know, like the one part of my mind that's going, okay, so I'm drinking. So I'm not sure whether I'm getting my feelings hurt because I'm drinking. Cause you know, there's like mean drunks and sad drunks. And, um, had I been drinking what I'm, I'm one who just is sensitive, sensitive when I'm drinking, like not yeah. so much mad as much as like, I get my feelings hurt easily. I am so glad I wasn't drinking that night because I was just listening to them and just being kind of entertained by how smashed everybody was and how mean, but not intentionally. They, they're, they were all just drinking and having, you know, having some fun at my expense. And, you know, I was able, because I totally had my faculties about me, I was able to say, you guys, I'm so sorry. I actually am listening to content that I, you know, collect so that on the beach, I'm listening to it. Like you probably don't even see that I have earbuds in and what, and they didn't, they didn't care and they weren't listening and it's fine. But the point is I had a great time, but I will say this about going to parties since I don't drink anymore. We're always the first ones to leave. Yeah. It just gets too loud. Can you relate to that at all? Or do you stay till the bitter end at 2 a.m.? No, for sure. I think when you're not drinking, um, you can enjoy it for the first hour, hour and a half, but you start to be keenly become aware when everybody starts to change in their tonality, in their 
pitch of their voice, in them laughing at things that like probably aren't actually that funny. Just the, the personality shifts. And when everybody else's personality is shifting towards that energy, that, that, that way that people become, um, it's just not really that enjoyable. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, I, I always tell that to people. It's like, by, by quitting drinking, you're not giving up your social life. You're not giving up your friends. It doesn't mean you can never go to a party again. You can never go to a bar. You can whatever. You can still go do all those things. One, you're in the beginning, maybe it's a little bit uncomfortable because you're kind of getting used to it, but it normalizes eventually, just like everything in reality does. It normalizes eventually. Um, but you'll actually appreciate it more because when you're fully present, the the depth of the conversations you get to have, right? Looking into somebody as eyes, like the connection that you build is so much more meaningful than you you think it's more meaningful because you're hopped up on alcohol, but it's really not. When when you're alcohol free and you're fully present, it's it's so much more meaningful. Um, but then yeah, you know, after an hour, hour and a half. You 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 see everybody kind of shift, and you're like, all right, I'm good to go. Then you get to drive home. You don't have to worry about being drunk or getting a DUI or getting into an accident or putting yourself or anyone else in harm. And then you get to go maybe enjoy the rest of your evening, get some incredible sleep, and then you probably wake up super early the next day and hit your morning routine and and appreciate a nice morning and not have to feel guilt or feel shame about what you said or what you did or how you acted and have to you know, be feeling anxious because your neurochemistry is all imbalanced, then you get to go seize your day. You know, Talk about the anxiety thing. That was a big motivator for me because anxiety has kind of been my demon my whole life. And I've, I have one of my children, one of the ones who has not yet quit drinking, who talks a lot about anxiety. And I don't think he necessarily knows how linked the after effects of drinking are. Um, yeah. He's. I've. I've bribed all my kids to read Annie Grace's book. I, I actually offered them all a thousand dollars to read it, and both my daughters did it. And they had. They had already quit drinking a few months before that, anyway. But it's kind of rough for all of us because none of us had any alcohol. None of my kids drank alcohol by the time they graduated high school. Um, like I said, growing up in this Mormon culture, so grateful for it that I didn't do all that damage to my liver because nobody really around me was, I, I did actually drink alcohol. Like I could probably count on one hand, how many times I did in high school just to rebel and see what it was about, but I didn't really pick it up and I didn't continue from there. And then I went to Mormon university. So, so grateful for that. I may not have kept the, the religion, um, but I'm just so glad I didn't have alcohol in my life till I was 43. Cause for you, it was a lot harder. You probably liked the taste of it. I never, never, never liked it. Did you yeah. like it? I never, I hated the taste of it. I just liked the effect, yep. you know, for me in binge shrinkers, people who, who can't stop after they have one. And I think this is also important for everybody to realize is that alcohol affects us all differently. So not everybody feels the same effect of alcohol. Like it's 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 more common to understand with weed, for example. Like some people, when they smoke weed, they get really anxious. Some people, when they smoke weed, they get paranoid. Some people, when they smoke weed, they get super introspective in their mind. Some people, when they smoke weed, they uh, feel very calm and relaxed. Alcohol is the same way. It affects people differently. Um, based off of the way your brain is wired, past trauma, neurochemistry. So for me, like when I would drink alcohol, the dopamine response was strong and rapid. Like drinking alcohol for me, it was almost like like doing cocaine, for example. Like huge spike of dopamine, huge spike of pleasure and reward, euphoria, and then it would drop rapidly. And that drop rapidly is what would create the profound craving and compulsion to have a second one and then a third one. So it was literally just like hit after hit after hit. And not everybody feels that way. Not, not everybody gets that, that pleasure and that euphoria that individuals like I do. Some people, like I have friends when they drink alcohol, they get really tired. Or I have other people who drink who after like a couple, they, it really gives them a strong headache. So not everybody experiences it the same way. And people who are binge drinkers or who end up developing a problematic relationship with alcohol, 
a lot of people who are quote unquote, let's say regular or moderate drinkers, who they don't get that that response and they have a couple, they don't get that euphoria and pleasure. It just kind of gives them this buzz that it's like, it's it's okay, it's fun, it relaxes them, whatever. They look at people who can't stop drinking and they're like, oh, you're weak-minded or you have no willpower or you have no self-control. And it's it's really not that. Like it's your the the way our brain is reacting to it is profoundly different than somebody who can stop it two or three. Um, and it and that's I think a very, very important important conversation piece that the vast majority of people aren't aware of. They think like, hey, if you're a problem drinker, it's because you're weak-willed, you can't handle your shit, uh, you know, you have no self-control, just stop. And it's like Dude, once that switch went on for me, it doesn't matter. My brain goes into survival mode. And the only thing I can think about, and it, it's this dopamine feeding cycle, um, and which is what creates addiction. It's this neurochemical feeding cycle. So when you, you, you said, what's the anxiety? So when you drink alcohol, you want to jump in a little bit into the brain chemistry and, and what's going on here? Sure. Yeah. So when you drink alcohol, it floods your brain with with two primary neurotransmitters. One is dopamine and one is GABA. Dopamine is um, responsible for feelings of reward. It activates the reward center in the brain, which is a very deeply primal center in the brain. Um, There's this video, this neuroscientist talks about addiction. He says the three most important things in the world are food, water, and dopamine. Like We would not be here in our evolution, 2023, if it wasn't for dopamine. Dopamine is tied to reward. So every time we eat food, every time we have sex, every time we make forward progress towards something meaningful, do- the reward center is activated in our brain. Dopamine is secreted. It makes us feel good. And that sends a signal to every cell in the being to reinforce that behavior because dopamine is tied to survival. So sex and food, right? Those two things have, have allowed us to evolve. Now, what happens is when you drink alcohol, it's it increases dopamine like insane amounts. So the average person has about 50 nanograms per deciliter of dopamine in their brain. And when you have, let's say, sex or you eat your absolute favorite food, it increases dopamine to about 90 to 95 nanograms per deciliter. So you're effectively doubling the amount of like pleasure and reward that you feel. Now on the flip side, to help you understand, if you have, let's say, are sitting at 50 and then you know, you get some bad news. You just got fired from your job. Your dopamine levels would drop to about 40. So imagine the level of motivation that you have to like do anything after you just heard that you lost your job. And that's 10, that's a 10 point decrease. Okay. To kind of help you understand the, the, the depth of what's happening here. Now, if you're clinically depressed and you literally can't sit up or move out of your bed, your dopamine's at about a 10. Now, on the flip side, when you drink alcohol, it increases dopamine to about 190 to 200. So you're getting this huge activation in the reward center. And this reward center, through 6 million years of evolution, however many million years of evolution, is not designed to go past 100. I mean, sex and your favorite food is the maximum amount of pleasure that we are meant to experience as a human being. But now you introduce alcohol into the mix and if in your brain is lighting up like a jackpot, like a million dollar jackpot. Now what happens is what goes up must come down. Your brain is always trying to maintain a level of balance and homeostasis. So when you increase dopamine and also GABA above baseline, GABA is a neurotransmitter that makes you feel relaxed. That's why you feel kind of relaxed after you have some wine or a couple of drinks. When you increase this before it comes back down to baseline, it tips to the equal and opposite direction. And if you want to learn more about this, a great book is Dopamine Nation, Dr. Anna Lemke. She goes deep into into all these details. Tips to the equal and opposite direction. And so the next day, you feel unmotivated. You have some brain fog. Um, you know, nothing seems that like fun or exciting. And you have anxiety because now your your GABA is in a deficient state. And when you have low GABA, you have anxiety. When you have low dopamine, you have low motivation. Now, before it comes back up to 50, which is your normal baseline, it's actually not going to come back up to 50. It's going to come up to 49 because what you're doing is you're training your system in your brain to become dependent on this exogenous substance that is 
pumping and activating dopamine in, in the reward center in your brain. Now, dopamine is super important because it's like it's tied to your personal evolution as a human being. The reward center is only supposed to be activated when you as a human being make forward progress in a productive way evolving and growing as a person, whether it's moving up the ladder in society, losing weight, working hard, achieving your goals, whatever it might be, real actual forward progress and movement. But when people discover that, hey, I can activate this reward center by paying two, three, four, five bucks at the store, the normal production of dopamine starts to reduce and you continue this over 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Now your normal baseline level of dopamine, I don't know, let's say is at 40. And so now everything in your life that doesn't involve alcohol, like isn't that fun or exciting? Alcohol starts to become the centerpiece. It becomes this thing that you look forward to as a way to de-stress, as a way to relax. So you're, you're now using this thing to hack your neurochemistry. And that is what creates the cycle of addiction is this roller coaster of neurochemistry, of, of super highs, then super lows. And eventually... The baseline gets lower and lower and lower and lower, and you feel more anxious and more dependent and mentally become more obsessed with the thing just to take you back up to that place. The just, persist- to take you, just to take you back to the baseline. Of, because of feeling normal. You're not, you're not even chasing the high anymore, the, 20, the 200 um, no. milligrams per deciliter. Is that what the unit yeah. of measure is? nanograms per decimal nanograms okay thank you so i actually that's the last piece of content that you did that i heard from you and i have the book dopamine nation but i haven't listened to it in audible yet Um, but it's been recommended to me by other people who read what i had to say and said i want to quit drinking too i think i i don't know if it's just psychological heuristics since it's on my mind and it's something that i did and i've been out there talking about it I thought I'd just get punched in the face everywhere I talked about it. Like, what? The green smoothie girl drinks alcohol? Um, but I decided to do it. I've gone out there with a number of things that are pretty vulnerable and that you know people may think certain things of me. I've never pretended that I don't drink alcohol. I've talked about it before. But you know, I figured that people would have a lot of snark and whatever. And what I mostly got was appreciation. Totally. And people saying, I want to quit too. And so I don't know if the fact that I'm out there talking about it is why... It seems like everybody around me knows they need to quit, knows they want to quit, need a little pinky push, need an accountability partner. But are you are you seeing it too, that there's a lot of people trying to quit alcohol? Yeah, for sure. It's like, dude, nobody's getting out of this thing unscathed. Alcohol is a net negative across the board, right? It's either you're kind of in denial about it and not willing to accept the fact of all the negative consequences it's having because you're still tethered to the reward and the, and the way it's meeting your unmet needs, or you're feeling it and you just feel trapped because alcohol is woven it. It's, it's the drug that's woven its tentacles into the fabric of basically all social interactions and, and sort of human experience, right? And so, yeah, like, dude, everybody feels the hangovers. Everybody feels the, the damage to their energy levels, to the damage to their motivation. Everybody feels the pull to have to drink in social situations and all the negative consequences that come as a result, the lack of productivity, the lack of mental clarity. So nobody's getting out unscathed. It's just a matter of, have you developed the self-awareness and the courage to hold up the mirror to really be honest with yourself about your relationship with it? And I think more and more people are waking up to that. I told my youngest son that I'd give him $10,000 if he graduated college um, having never drank alcohol. And then he went and pledged a fraternity and that was the end of that. But anyway, I want to review the math on that because that really struck me when you were reviewing what uh, Dopamine Nation talks about. I just want to go through the math that you sort of gave us long form and hit it really short and you can correct me. What's the unit of measure again? Nanograms per deciliter. Okay, so you said that normal amount of dopamine that should be in your bloodstream is about 40 to 50, like let's say 50 50. nanograms per deciliter and that people like to chase dopamine. I think honestly, the United States of America is probably the biggest dopamine chasers in the history of mankind. We think it's just a nonstop circus. We're just constantly chasing dopamine and we have lots of ways to do it. 
and they're even affordable for almost everyone. By the way, my next door neighbor died this week. Everybody knows him to be on in drug on drugs and and uh, drinking. And we're some of the youngest people on this street, uh, but he's younger, and he just died in his house. And I don't think anybody on this street is surprised. But just so much drinking and and you know, God knows what other substances. But so about fifty. Let's just put a pin in it. About fifty um, nanometers per deciliter. No, nano. Nanograms per deciliter. Nanograms per deciliter. Um, and then when we drink, it can literally go to 200. So did you yeah. guys get that? That that maybe having sex or um, certain, you know, high dopamine things, eating your favorite ice cream or whatever can put you at 90. So you go from a, a baseline of 50, which is where you feel good. And you don't necessarily have to be on substances to have enough dopamine to sustain at 50 per deciliter. You might go to 90 doing your favorite activities like sex. Side note, I actually asked my husband after a couple of months, I was like, what do, what do you think? Like, is, is sex better for us drinking or not drinking? And he had to sit there. He sat there for probably 10 seconds thinking about it. He goes, not drinking. And I said, I think so too. And I think that people think that sex is better um, when you're drinking and it's not. Like, you might not even remember it that well the next day you Right. You are just, you just have less inhibitions. But anyways, that's a, a side issue. So then you go, when you're drinking, you can literally go to 200 per deciliter. Did everybody get that? 50s baseline, 90 might be sex or ice cream. 200 is why, and that makes sense. Give us compassion for the people who are stupid drunk, yeah. which, you know, most of us have been, you're, you're getting such a dopamine high but then you can fall down to 10 and 20 and 30 and people call it anxiety. And it's really, would you agree, like low grade hangover for days or weeks? Yeah, for sure. I mean, human beings, what we are is we're a conscious witness to a supercomputer and the supercomputer is driven by our nervous system and uh, well, our brain, our nervous system and our neurochemistry. And so how you feel on a day-to-day basis, you know, largely impacted and driven by your neurochemistry. And alcohol wreaks absolute havoc on the sensitive balance of this neurochemistry. And so if you want to feel your best, if you want to be optimized, if you want to have good energy, if you want to have good mental clarity, if you want to feel regulated and not constantly be in this emotional roller coaster you want to have balance, if you want to be productive, if you want to be proactive, like you want to be very mindful of your neurochemistry. And, and that just comes down to what you consume and how you manage your energy. But alcohol absolutely wreaks havoc on it. And they're just... People don't realize that. They, they don't think about that. They're like, oh, well, Budweiser commercial. Oh, yeah. It's everybody... Oh, relax and have some wine. Sure. Yeah. Great. Like... Nobody's thinking about what's happening behind the scenes. And I think as a person, as you become more mindful, as you become more self-aware, as you want to really embark on this personal growth journey, which it sounds like many of your clients do, given what you do with health and everything else, like you want to understand your human operating system. What is going on behind the scenes? Why do I feel this way? How, how, how is what I'm doing impacting my brain? Um, and that's super, super important, especially I think for addiction and alcohol and understanding it, because like you kind of like most people for the last a hundred years, if they've struggled with alcohol, the only solution was basically go to AA, right? Like kind of the 12 step stuff. And the way they interpret and look at alcohol is really old school and outdated and very disempowering and very debilitating and it's you're mentally ill and you have a disease and you know it's this obsession and they don't look at it through a neuroscientific and trauma informed lens which which is what all my content is about and what i think people need because it's not this deep dark black hole that you just you can't understand it like once you understand the human operating system and what's going on behind the scenes it really empowers you and provides light at the end of the tunnel to be like, hey, this thing, okay, there's a reason I'm feeling this way. There's a reason I get cravings. There's a reason for all of it. And if I can understand it, I think that is the first step to um, to helping you develop the courage to begin moving in that direction. 
Yeah, I agree. And I'll share down below anybody who is following us where there's links down below, we will put uh, my younger daughter's Cliff's notes that she wrote of this naked mind, very, very much like Bardia. She doesn't resonate with the AA model. And I don't think any of us would criticize anybody who wants to go to AA meetings. Um, I had a nanny for a while who went to an AA meeting every single day, even though I don't think she had had alcohol for many years, but it was just kind of where she found her tribe. But my younger daughter told me that she went to an AA meeting or two and she just felt very weirded out. I also, and I won't belabor this whole story, but my best friend for 20 years worked for me at here, right here at Green Smoothie Girl for 10 years, lost her job because she was abusing alcohol so badly that she basically wasn't functioning on the job, doing, doing things that were hurting the business. It was really hard to bring up. It was the elephant in the room, but I just saw her go from being the best employee I ever had to being non-functional and making a rather obscene amount of money. And it wasn't worth it to me anymore. Um, I even went to her wife and said, Hey, we need to do something about this. Will you, will you back me up on it? And the first thing she said was, it's destroying my life and I'm in counseling about it, but she won't come with me. And then the next day I got a text from her and she said, we never had that conversation because I was reaching out to her to basically do this whole intervention thing. Next day she texts me and says, we never had that conversation. And that's when I knew I was on my own. Mm. And so I've had, you know, a lot of, um, exposure to what happens when people just go downhill. But what I want to say about watching my best friend go from being the vibrant, fun, uh, the best employee I've ever had, um, and maybe probably the best friend I've ever had in this whole world, even though we have no relationship now because of the whole way that that went down, even though us parting ways of her working with me, we never even discussed the alcohol thing. It's too awkward. It's too terrible. It's too weird. And I'm even a person who's willing to have the crucial conversation. I've read that book three times, but we just didn't talk about it. We just didn't talk about it because I I honestly, I felt like my saying you have to stop drinking would make no sense since she and I had gone out and partied so many times and there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? Like I watched her slide and it was not overnight. I watched yeah. it for 10 years. It's I watched slow, her destroy it's her life. Yep. I watched her gain hundred pounds. I watched her destroy her relationship with me. I watched her destroy her career and it didn't happen in a day or a month or a year, or I'm sure somewhere along the line, it would have said something. But yeah. by the time, by the time we parted ways, her whole career, her whole life was in ashes. Yeah. That, and that's why alcohol is so sneaky. It's such a Trojan horse in our society. It's because you don't like, sure, you, you, you experience the acute effects of alcohol the day after or the following few days in lack of energy and poor sleep and brain fog and lack of motivation or whatever else or anxiety. But, and, and it's not killing you, right? Sure, you feel the acute negative consequences, but dude, this thing, you do this two days a week, three days a week, and it seems harmless, but you compound this over a five-year, 10-year, 15, 20-year period. And now you spend half of your, like all of your 20s or your 30s and then 40s. And it's like, the what is the opportunity cost that you have now like incurred? in your health, in all the weight gain, in your energy, in your productivity, in the time, right? Like I, I, I did a video on my TikTok of like, if you're drinking three days a week, okay, let's do the math. If you're drinking three days a week in the evening, so let's say from 5 to 10 PM, that's 15 hours a week, right? That's 60 hours a month. That's 720 hours per year that you are spending effectively numbed out and poisoned. 720 hours, like that's a long time, not considering the downstream consequences of the money, the damage to relationships, personal health, self-esteem, and and, and everything else. You compound that now, let's say over a one-year, 10-year, 20-year period, and then people complain about their life. They're like, oh, well, my health and like my bills and my my job and my relationships and and everything else. And it's like, well, those periods that that incredibly like 
the Friday to Sunday, which or the Saturday and Sunday, which you could have spent reinvesting back into yourself, building, you know, working out, acquiring new skills, deepening your relationships with family or whatever else is important to you as part of your life compass, like we're spent and numbed out. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, what what the hell happened? Now, again, this isn't to shame or to judge or to blame, right? The reason we drink is because that is the best solution that we have found to manage our psychology and our emotional state. We haven't learned the proper coping mechanisms and tools. We haven't developed our identity. We have maybe trauma, which is dysregulating our mind, our psychology, and our nervous system. We get stressed out a lot. We get overwhelmed a lot. We get frustrated easily. We get anxious, right? And through this matrix, through this culture, through the media, oh, just have some wine, just relax, mommy wine culture, and the whole deal. Right. And so what starts out as this harmless thing, oh, I'm just doing it to have fun, to relax and to party, compounds over the your youth and the kind of the best years of your life. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, what the hell happened? Right. Yeah. Nothing worse than the single mom culture. I remember I would go out with my girlfriends the first six months or a year or whatever. And we would go out and we would go dancing because we all like to dance. And then like by 10 o'clock, I'd be like, can we go now? Well, and nobody ever wanted to leave. They're like, Robin, it's 10 o'clock. Well, you know, then when I finally just caved and started drinking like everybody else, and I was perfectly happy to stay till 1 a.m. Like everyone else, just because everything got blurry and everything got fuzzy and I lost track of time, which I never do. I'm always always have my, my eye on the clock. So anyway, it, it, the whole, it was the single mom culture for me. And this whole, whole idea of we're raising kids by ourselves. We all have these intense careers. We're trying to pay the bills. And then Saturday night, I just had this thing in my mind that Saturday night is the one night I don't have to follow all the rules and I don't have to be anybody's mommy. Right. I get to go hang out with my friends. I don't know, maybe some reclaimed adolescence. I don't know. But I really appreciate all your work, Mardia. If I were you, I'd probably be sick of talking about drinking by now. And and probably you are, but you just keep showing up and serving people. I've learned so much from you um, watching you just the last few months. And I appreciate it because that's, that's for me, the recalibration. Like if I, I really haven't been tempted to drink, I thought I'd be white knuckling it. And I really haven't like read the book, listen to you, listen to Andrew Huberman. And I was like, why did I ever do that in the first place? But it is easier for me because I didn't have any alcohol. So I was 43, never developed a taste for it. Never met a wine I like, never met a beer I like, never met a drink that didn't taste terrible to me. So it it really wasn't as hard for me. because I and, I and I really, really feel for the people whose parents were pouring them a little cup at Thanksgiving to sort of socially acclimate them to the, yeah. career, the career of drinking that they had ahead of them. And I honestly don't think that most people even know what it's doing to them. It's normal for that. That's their normal is that you feel like crap on Sunday morning or especially Monday morning after you've been drinking for two or three nights in a row. I have nothing but compassion for folks. I can tell that you're very passionate about helping people. I'm sure every day people are telling you, thank you for the impact that your work has had on them. So maybe tell us like one more thing that has come to you that you are thinking, I wish that I'd said to everyone and then wrap up with telling everybody where they can find you. And how do you work with people who need help quitting drinking? Yeah. Thank you, Robin. I I appreciate the kind words. Um, I'm super passionate about what I do. I, you know, I've, I've synthesized my life and my reality and my purpose and everything I've experienced from the time I was born up until this point. I think it was all divinely planned, divinely ordered, divinely timed. I went through each of those struggles between being uniquely positioned in the family that I that I grew up in and all the adverse experiences and losing my dad and then everything that I went through and all the the work I've put into it to like be here doing this and so I just I feel super called to it. Um but I think if there's one thing that I can that I can share with people and I think what is a little bit different about me, um, maybe compared to to some other individuals sort of in this space, is that you know, I take a proactive approach towards optimizing for potential. And the way I look at it, this is we're not quitting drinking to 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 just for the sake of quitting drinking, to just say, oh, well, we can't 
party anymore and socialize and I have to live in the shadow of addiction forever and you know I'm broken and I'm recovering for 40 years like no we quit drinking so that we can finally return home to ourselves so that we can begin to mentally emotionally and spiritually evolve and ascend as a person to raise our vibration to increase our consciousness and to begin fulfilling our potential I've got this this podcast episode and it's kind of this this term I've coined um, you know, alcohol at the end of the day, when it's become problematic, is a suicidal form of procrastination. What we're doing is we are procrastinating against addressing the root cause, the dysregulation that exists inside us. For many of us, it's a lot of childhood trauma, or it could be other aspects of our life, maybe presently, that we're unhappy with, that we don't know how to manage or, or, or problem solve. And so we're using alcohol to numb out and escape. So I would like ask you or challenge you to really be honest with yourself, to hold up the mirror and ask yourself, like, what am I doing here on earth? Right? Like, was this the plan to just be born, to go to school, to get an education, to get a job, and then to just drink and to be obsessed with alcohol and to filter all my, my life through alcohol? Like, I don't think so. I don't think that was the plan. That wasn't the plan for me, although that's kind of how it ended up happening. And I think a lot of us kind of get trapped in this. And so ask yourself, like, what do I want? If I have 30, 40, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years left, what's the music inside me that I want to share, that I want to express with people? What's the mark that I want to leave? How do I want to contribute? What is my unique talent? What is my unique skill set? Like, what do I want to experience in this life? Alcohol is a distraction to all of that. It's just going to slow you down. And as you begin to dig deeper and deeper into this stuff and, and really better understand the human operating system, you realize that like, dude, alcohol is just a distraction. You never needed the alcohol. We were tricked. We were duped into thinking that we did, right? The human operating system, who you are, comes hardwired and equipped to handle any stressor, to handle any challenge, to handle any curveball. You can learn to self-regulate. You can learn to manage your mind. You can learn to manage your emotions. You can improve your mental and emotional regulation. You can heal from your trauma. You can create a sense of harmony and safety and homeostasis within your nervous system. You can begin to love yourself. You can begin to appreciate yourself. You can begin to double down on your strengths and develop confidence and self-esteem and self-worth. And if it feels like all those things are a universe away, then that's okay. And it's totally normal. Like I think everybody, when they get to that place where they've developed a problematic relationship with alcohol, kind of feels the same. But the first step to embodying that person, to connecting to that vision, to fulfilling that potential is developing the courage within yourself to remove the alcohol. And you don't even need to make a commitment that you're never going to drink again. In fact, I would implore you not to. The only commitment that you ever have to make is that you're just not going to drink today. I'm two and a half years into this thing, two and a half years sober. And I still haven't told myself as a stop drinking coach and everything I'm building that I'm never drinking again because it's the wrong program to run. The only commitment that you ever have to make is that you're just not going to drink today. And when you wake up tomorrow, do it again. And if we can break our life down into 24-hour increments, whether it applies to staying sober and living alcohol-free or any other sort of problem-solving or, or challenge that we're trying to get through, it's like, if you can break it down into 24-hour increments, it becomes possible. So think about your potential. Think about the opportunity cost with alcohol and, um, and just take the next right step forward. Yeah, it's, um, it's occurring to me throughout our whole conversation here that in March of 2020, my whole show shifted from the latest nutrition book out or uh, you know all these different health and wellness topics, high vibration topics, to all things medical freedom related. And I don't think I realized till right this second that there's no greater freedom than just saying, saying I'm done with alcohol. I'm sick of it stealing from my energy. I'm sick of going out to dinner at 6 p.m. on Saturday night and I'm in bed at 9.30 p.m. Since I don't drink on Saturday night now, I'll come home from us going out to dinner. And I last weekend, I worked till 1230. Now I know that that's not everybody's fantasy of what to do till 1230, but there's some stuff I wanted to do. I get dopamine from a lot of my work. 
Yeah. And I just was really in the flow of researching something and it was 1230 at night. And that just could never have happened to your point of all the hours you've lost and all the aggregated hours add up to lost years. Plus all the times that we're just trying to show up as our best selves, but we can't because we're living at such a low vibration, you know, and another way to think of it is, is low dopamine. I think we've all become a lot more aware of dopamine. I just hear it discussed everywhere. All these neurotransmitters that we, these uh, neurochemicals that our body makes and we're all chasing higher amounts of it, but the highest isn't always the best. Maybe the most stable is the best. Yeah. Yeah. Chasing it is, it's a trap. So we're all about medical freedom somehow on this show the last couple of years. And so I think that this subject is right in line with that. So tell everyone where they can follow you and seek you out for your services. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on, Robin. So, um, you know, my main channel that I produce all my content on is TikTok. So at Stop Drinking Coach on TikTok, that's probably, I've got like over 200 videos on there. So if you want to dig deeper into really learn about everything that we just talked about here, definitely go to my TikTok. That's where I have the most information. But then I also have a podcast. It's uh, The Stop Drinking Coach. I think if you just look up Stop Drinking or Stop Drinking Coach, I'm one of the first ones that pop up on both Spotify and Apple. I think I've got like 15 or 16 episodes on there. And I put out uh, one new one per week. Recently, over the last three or four, I started recording them video-wise. And now my podcasts are also going on to YouTube. So if you like to watch them, you can find me on YouTube under The Stop Drinking Coach. My personal Instagram is at the stop drinking coach. And then my website is www.thestopdrinkingcoach.com. I have a 90 day program, um, a coaching program to help you stop drinking and really step into the next chapter of your life. You know, ultimately, my goal is to create a container and a system um, to help you achieve your first year of sobriety. So it doesn't necessarily end at the 90 days. You know, there's opportunities to continue working together one on one, also a group program. I'm continually creating new resources and pumping resources into my community where you'll be able to connect with other people who are on the same mission and purpose and journey and really just kind of evolve into that next chapter of who you're capable of becoming. I love it. Thank you so much for your work. Everybody check out the Stop Drinking Coach, Barty Arez. Yeah, thank you, Robin. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. 